Good evening and welcome to Mets 360 here on CAST. I'm your host Brian Jura and today I'm joined by fantasy baseball expert Tim McLeod. Tim, thanks so much for rejoining us. I think this is your third, fourth appearance on the show. We, One of our favorite guests. Well, thanks so much, Brian. It's always a pleasure joining you to talk some baseball. Uh, All definitely right, my pleasure. <laughs> well, well, right, right now, now we've got a real big thing happening in Mets land, and that's uh, General Manager Sandy Alderson announced uh, that he was going to be stepping down because he had a recurrence of the, the cancer that uh, uh, first sprung up a couple of years ago with him. Um, he, he, he said that he was only stepping away, but I think it's, it's well known that his, his time is, is done. So I would like you to be able to give me um, a baseball fan's uh, view on Alderson's tenure as Mets GM. How, how would you rate him? I'd rate him fairly highly, uh, Brian. You know, when he got into the organization and took over the job, he was stepping into an incredibly difficult situation with the Wilpons being just about flat broke. And, you know, he's made, he made some great trades. The, the trade with the Blue Jays where he acquired Syndergaard and Darneau. He made some very, very, I think, solid signings. He exercised patience with the pitching and let them develop to the point where, you know, he got them to the 2015 World Series and had the breaks gone the other way with two of those games being decided in extra innings. You know, he, hey, he could have, uh, although he didn't, uh, win a World Series. So, overall, I think he did a good job working within the constraints that he was faced with. Now, I guess this brings me to another question. Do you think that uh, Bud Selig and, and MLB foisted Alderson on the Wilpons, given the financial situations that they were dealing with at the time? Ah. Uh. I, th- I think it was a very prudent move by all parties. How's that? Is that the politically correct way? <laughs> I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to go through the side door on that one. I think it was a good move for everybody concerned. How's that? Now, one of the complaints that uh, certainly my readers have is that Alderson was so in love with one particular type of player. Uh, he chased power over all other things and uh, a well-rounded player somebody who was good on defense who could uh, hit singles the opposite way who could run the bases those things just didn't seem to be nearly as important to Alderson as as power and and certainly if you just look at the the big moves that he made this year getting Jay Bruce and 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 Todd Frazier uh, Frazier uh, very good on defense but Power is what they bring to the table for the most part. Yeah, I think I think um, he also faced some real challenges. You know, he I think he made the right move, and the Mets as an organization made the right, right move in signing David Wright. Okay, unfortunately, it didn't work out. But you can't hold that on Alderson. You know, Wright was going to be the offensive catalyst, and the clubhouse he was the team leader, and it didn't work out. Even some even some of the other moves, like Juan Lagares, he's always been hurt, but he, you know he's a nice, well-rounded player, and. Uh, I think maybe some of some of what he got dealt was a little on the unfortunate side, especially with regards to injuries. Uh, there was just a slew of them, and what do you do? If you know the answer to that, please let us know, because it, it seems to happen year after year. You're very consistent, but, um, yes. Yeah, yeah. Now, the Mets are, are going to go with uh, interim GM or GMs, 
uh, and then look to make a permanent hire in the offseason. But let's do a hypothetical here. If you were hired today to be the Mets GM, what are, say, the first three things that you would tackle in the job? Well, I, would, I would basically look at a, a three-pronged approach of getting Rosario, Nemo, Smith, play them all. Find out what you got. Get these kids into the game. Jose Reyes playing shortstop is doing absolutely nothing for the organization. Get Rosario in there. Let's see what the kids have got. Even Dominic, you know, Dominic Smith, the same sort of thing. Uh, the next thing I would do is I would move. I would move any high-priced vet that I potentially could. The guys I wouldn't move would be guys like the young kids and guys like Conforto. I guess he's young enough as it is. Uh, move the vets. See what you can see what you can do. Unfortunately, most of them are all hurt, so their their hands are tied there. And the other thing I would do is I would exercise patience. The Mets have some nice talent at, uh, down on the farm. You know, you've got David Peterson and Justin Dunn, who I think are going to be very very good pitchers. Pete Alonso has now made it to AAA, and he's just having a major breakout year. Exercise some patience with those kids. Let them develop, and when they're ready, I think Mets fans are going to be very happy. So I've got a follow-up question on this one, and that is one of the popular things you hear right now is that the Mets need to trade either Syndergaard or DeGrom to, to I guess, put the rebuild build into uh, full motion. But I didn't, I didn't hear you say that in, in your response. So if you were the GM, you would hold on to I would hold two. on to Syndergaard. I would move to, move DeGrom. Um, I think right now they can get a boatload for DeGrom. Uh, Syndergaard's got the injury thing happening and some question marks there. DeGrom's healthy and he's ready to go. Yeah, move, move Jake DeGrom. Any veteran you can possibly move that's going to net you a half-decent haul, make the move and start uh, building an even stronger farm system because they're not going to get to that to the next level to be a playoff team and a good team without developing that farm system and having the kids ready uh, ready and raring to go now with the way things have been going here recently the the Mets have the real possibility of finishing with a hundred loss season are you prepared as GM of the Mets to lead them down maybe uh, one of those uh, Cubs-Astros paths where they lose 100 games in a row, three, three seasons well, you, in a row? Well, you know what, if you take a look at where the Astros are today and the Cubs are today, and here's an even, here's an even more up-to-date example. How about the Atlanta Braves, who are currently leading the AL East? Where were they two years ago? Where are they today? I think if you want to build that team and you want to have a contender, at some point in time you got to bite the bullet. Now is as good a time as any. Do it, get at it, and shape your future. You bring up an interesting point with the Braves, but I'd like to, to throw out there that I think the Braves have been incredibly fortunate in that the Nationals and the, the Mets are both way down from where they were expected to be coming into this year. And I think the Braves are at least one year, possibly two years ahead of, of where they should have reasonably been expected to be. Maybe they shouldn't have been looked at to have lost 100 games this year, but I don't think anybody in their right mind was predicting them to uh, win. The no, I, I personally, I liked Ozzie Albies a lot, but I didn't have him down for 30 home runs. 
no, not quite, not, not quite. I, you know, I, you know, you look at the Cuna. The thing that I like about about the Braves and it's it, is the depth in their farm, farm, uh, in their in their minors as far as pitching is concerned. They've got a slew of pitchers, and they're all starting to. To, to get very close to being ready all at the same time, and that's going to hold them in good stead. So, you know, if, if I if I was running the GM of the Mets, I'd say, okay, here's the scoop. Do you want do you want to finish fourth in the division for the next ten years, or do you want to do things the right way, exercise patience, and away you go? And you know what? Use the Yankees in, as an example. You look at what their what their farm system is yielding. Yeah, you got Torres, you got Andahar, Aaron Judge's. You know, fairly recent out of the farm system, Severino. Uh, you you look at what is happening, and the teams with the strong farm systems are the ones that are going to be good, solid teams. You fill in the gaps with the odd free agent, and away you go. Now everyone points to the the Astros and the Cubs and, and certainly hats off to both of those organizations for what they were able to do but the flip side of that is the Cincinnati Reds they sold off all of their stars and now they're in purgatory and, and I think that the Reds are certainly trying to develop that farm system but they certainly look like they're still three four more years away from competing and I think we're uh, it's up in the air how the White Sox are going to do from, from their sell-offs from a few years ago so I think that uh, if I was an, uh, a GM, and certainly if I was an owner, I'd be just a little bit hesitant about signing on the dotted line for 100 lost seasons for three years in a row. And I think that's yeah, uh, it, it, that's prob- it probably is in that market, but uh, I think it's the only way to go, and it would probably mean I'd have a short tenure as the next GM, Brian. <laughs> Hey, but it, it's uh, you can you once you have that title, you have it for life, and then everybody has to address you as uh, Mr. General Manager, and uh, you got the ultimate be, uh, resume. I'd buy, back. I'd rent an apartment. I, I wouldn't buy a house. How's that? <laughs> All right. Well, let's let's. All right. Well, let's let's move on. Um, let's let's talk more big picture item here, and uh, you know, the the relatively new. Major League Baseball Commissioner Rob Manfred. To me, he seems like a man desperately in search of a legacy. Uh, You know, a guy who's going to consider any idea as long as he can get credit for it. And I I guess I have a two-part question on here. And and the first is, do you agree with that? And and second, um, do you have anything in mind that you think that he should pursue to cement that legacy? Yeah, I totally agree, uh, Brian. Uh, I think when you look at Manfred, he's looking for a way to put a stamp on the game. And Personally, the biggest thing that he could do, okay, that would be a positive to me, would be to retire. (laughs) I I can't see it happening, Brian, but, you know, come on. At some point in time, there will be moments and there will be decisions and the game is constantly evolving and changing. I think he's best off to let the events of history unfold as compared to trying to shape it to his to his will. Does that make sense? Absolutely. Uh, absolutely. I've never been a big fan uh, going back to his days renegotiating the posting agreement as Bud Selig's right-hand man in Japan. And I, uh, like I said, I, I think he's in a rush to do things that aren't going to benefit the game. 
I don't think that there's anything wrong with revisiting ideas or visiting them for the first time, but it just seems like he's barking up the wrong tree. Uh, talking about putting a, a limit on how teams can shift. I mean, I think that's the time, of, the, the type of ideas that you need to let the, the game take care of on the field. I mean, I think, certainly think there's more aggressive things that they can do. Um, pace of play, perhaps. Maybe he can really lead the charge for a pitch clock. And, I, mean, I, I think there's a bunch of things that he could do. But um, the things that, that I've heard linked to yeah, him. Yeah, I, I do the same thing. Shake my head. You know what? You, you want to beat the shift? Lay down a bunt. Lay down two. Yeah, you know, hit, hit it to where they Absolutely. aren't. And if you can't do that, that speaks more to problems with the game uh, than eliminating it in the first place. You know, teach people to bunt. All right, well, I think we both would rather talk about things that are going on in the field rather than in the... The, the offices on Park Avenue. So let's get into that direction. I'm going to list uh, three players for you. I'm going to list them in alphabetical order. And I want you to list them in how you think they would rate an actual baseball talent. And those three are Mickey Mantle, Willie Mays. Uh, yeah, that's that's a win-win-win conversation. There, there are no losers there. <laughs> but I'm going to rank them Willie Mays, Mickey Mantle, and Mike Trout. And I think one of the problems that we have with our generation, and this is not a knock on Mike, Mike Trout, because he truly is the greatest player in the game today. I don't think there's any doubt on that. He's an amazing talent. But we have a tendency to focus so much on our generation, where we are today, and sometimes ignoring the greatness that has been presented to us in the past. And I think Mike Trout could eventually be talked of in that, you know, as, as one of the greatest players that ever played the game. But I, I think uh, I think another five years down the road will tell the tale a little bit better, uh, Brian. Like I said, I'm not knocking Mike Trout at all, but uh, you're talking about guys that had 600-plus homers, 500-plus homers. You know, it's, it's a pretty amazing group of individuals. Well, I agree completely. I agree completely there that it's an amazing uh, group of individuals. I, I guess the the point that that uh, perhaps I, I disagree with you on is that I think that in baseball, baseball fans have such uh, a tendency to to genuflect with the people who came 40, 50 years ago that sometimes they miss the greatness that's happening right in front of them. And I think that Mike Trout stands on an equal footing with those two players. Those two players have a complete a career in front of them, but I think if we, we cut it off on an age-based basis, you'd see, and, and we, we used uh, uh, ballpark and uh, era uh, neutralizing stats that we'd see Trout right Yeah, I can't argue with that. You, know, you, you can throw Albert Pujols in there as well. If you, if you compare what... Albert Pujols did to the point in time that Mike and Mike Trout has today. Pujols' numbers were just amazing, incredible. Yeah, you bring up uh, an excellent point in that even though everything looks great with Trout right now, we have no idea when 
the inevitable decline is going to come and one of the things that made Mantle and, and uh, Mays great is that they were still putting up uh, OPS plus years of uh, 140s and 150s into their, their late 30s and uh, you know it, it, it's still I guess up in the air whether Trout can do that or not and Pujols is certainly a, an excellent example of somebody who uh, uh, was on that path but uh, wasn't able to to continue it and it's unfortunate that he's taking up so much salary right now on that Angels club that Trout is on that uh, well yeah and let's face it the Angels are going to need some help. help they're dropping like flies uh, on the coast right now so I'm looking at Trout's numbers right now and he joined the majors at the age of 19 uh, got into 40 games that year and then the following year at age 20 put up a what 68 OPS plus I mean, that's that's mind-boggling and and then you look at it and he's essentially done better every year since 179 and then he had 168 again and 176 173 187 he's got a 205 OPS plus right now I I, I don't think we we fully appreciate what we're yeah, I know personally I do, on a because it's amazing, it really is. When you start looking at trying to rank and grade players, you know, Mike Trout is in this spot all unto himself uh, at the top of the game, and then you start filling in everything everything below that, and there is a gap between Mike Trout and everybody else, a rather significant one. Well, let's go back and talk another big picture issue if you don't mind and that's um, an MLB study they recently commissioned a study for, uh, an independent study um, to try to figure out what caused the home run explosion of the past uh, two two and a half years and the conclusion from this independent study was that there was a reduced drag on the ball and what do you think are the implications uh, for this I think study uh, I think it explains something that I believe Major League Baseball knew in the first place yeah, you know, it, they didn't go from A to B overnight without somebody knowing about it. And it would have been nice had that been known uh, maybe prior to uh, MLB implementing changes to the ball. Now, I know from uh, what I heard that um, supposedly the the seams were different on the balls that they were using the last year or so than what they were using three four years ago, but I, I believe that this study said there was no difference in the in the seams and that something else was causing the drag on the ball. So you you seem to think that MLB is complicit in whatever changes. Yeah, I, I'm to the relatively ball, convinced. That nothing uh, happened. Major League them Baseball uh, had as far as I'm concerned, to have known what was going on. Things just don't change because. You know what I mean? It's, hey, and let's face it, it's uh, maybe maybe that'll be Manfred's uh, legacy. Uh, home runs all over the place, the long ball, fans happy to see 11 to 6 scores, and maybe that'll be his legacy, uh, Brian. Well, I think that that would be a halfway decent legacy, except I think that the way that the the game is being played, that it takes three and a half, four hours, that people aren't happy to see that 11 to 6 score. So uh, he's still got to work if he wants to make it a, a positive legacy. But um, uh, I, I guess a follow-up on the question, and 
I think it's wonderful that that the MLB uh, conducted this study and and uh, got together a group of experts and got out of their way and let them uh, let them make their conclusions on their own. And I'm just wondering if we had done a, a similar investigation uh, for the silly ball era. Let's roughly call it 95 to 2005 when all the home runs were being hit. Um, do you think we would have no, learned something I, I else think, at the time uh, that I think uh, what, we don't uh, know now? What we learned about that era defines that era. I, I don't think there'd be anything new as a result of any study. It was... It was what it was, and that's Bud, Bud Selig's legacy. He created a situation, and then he cleaned it up and claimed that uh, he was the good guy, and congratulations. Bud was definitely good at claiming he was the good guy. All right, well, um, let's move on. Um, All right, well, um, let's move on. Um, Maybe the ball isn't the most uh, positive story, so let's in interject some positivity into here. So, what do you think that the uh, most positive team story uh, for me? It's for the Atlanta 2018 Braves. Baseball season uh, you know, is. we're looking at we're looking at a team that's currently leading the AL East. They've got uh, some great young talent in Ozzy Albies. You know, Ron Lacuna is back this week. Uh, another great young talent. We're going to see the veterans. You know, Freeman. NCRD, Marquecas, you know, we've, we've caught a glimpse of Soraka as a pitcher. Uh, Sean Newcomb is going to be an ace as far as I'm concerned. And it, it's just a real uplifting, you know, you're, you're taking a team, what was the record two years ago? They were looking up at the Mets, I believe, and now they're leading that division. And that to me is the, the most positive, uplifting story in the game this year. Well, I have to say, I didn't like how you said, well, they were looking up at the Mets. Like, that was. The, the <laughs> no, I, I could have said worse. I, I could have. I, so. I didn't mean that as I didn't mean that as a shot, but they were at the bottom <laughs> of the pile, and uh, they've really turned it around. And I, I love what they're doing in Atlanta. And, like, you know, like you mentioned, they're definitely ahead of schedule. And. You know, there's been some talk about uh, about them buying, possibly looking at uh, uh, Manny Machado as an ad, and they've got the talent in their minors that they can do and make some of these moves. So uh, it's going to be fascinating to watch what they do heading into July and the trade deadline. You certainly can't argue with your choice of the Braves as one of the the most positive stories. But I guess when when I thought about this question, the, the team that jumped to my mind was the Mariners. And not that I expected the Braves to be doing what they're doing, but I certainly didn't expect the Mariners to be on a pace to win 100 games. And and I recognize that there's a lot of things going right, and the one-run one record certainly being chief among them, and perhaps their strength of schedule up until this point of the, the season. But the Mariners are 15 playing better without them. Robinson Cano not available. I mean, to me, that... Yeah, yeah. I mean, to me, that that's that's amazing. And and you can argue that it's not going to keep going on, but... They've, they've got pieces in there. Um, well, yeah, and, you know, well, you start looking at all those one-run and close games, and uh, is it any surprise that Edwin Diaz has really stepped up and is right now arguably one of the 
one of the top three, four closers in the game with his 30 saves. You know, he's been pretty well locked down and a huge, huge part, along with Mitch Hanniger and, hey, Segura and Gordon at the top of the order, Nelson Cruz still pounding the ball. Uh, yeah, I, I don't have any problems with uh, the Mariners as a very, very feel-good type story as well. It's so funny to me because, uh, I don't know, four or five years ago, whenever he was a free agent, Nelson Cruz was the one guy that I wanted the Mets to steer clear of. And he certainly made the right decision for him staying in the American League where he could be a DH, whereas defense wasn't going to be a problem. But he's, what, 37, 38, some, something like that, and he's putting up a monster No, he's year. been making a liar out of me for many years. I've been predicting that, his demise for the past claim. couple, and every year he just shuts me right up. And I'm not even going to make a, a prediction on Nielsen Cruz next year. I'm going to stay right away from it. All right, well, I wanted you to make a prediction on another player. That's Bryce <laughs> uh, right All right, now, well, I wanted you to make a prediction on another player, and that's Bryce Harper. Uh, and right now, if the season ended, the Nationals would not make the playoffs, which is amazing to me and makes me happy if we're being honest. But if at the end of the real season, if the Nationals fail to make the playoffs, do you think that makes, think it makes them more likely least, or less, less likely, likely to, to uh, try to and resign? And I don't see that uh, as uh, I don't see that as a very real possibility anyway. Boros and Bryce Harper are going to go out into the marketplace and try and secure that $400 million deal. And I don't think the Nats will be party to it either way. But uh, if they don't make the playoffs, uh, what would the incentive be to bring back Bryce Harper and paying him a small fortune? This is his team right now. And uh, I think it's I think he should be stepping up and, and running that team. And a lot of what happens over the next two months We'll be on uh, Bryce Harper, whether it's right or wrong, but it it's his team, isn't it? Well, uh, as uh, arguably the best player on it, well, uh, as uh, arguably the best player on it, there's there's certainly a case to be made for that. And Harper is struggling right now. No one can deny that. But if they're going to pin their their um, uh, disappointing season completely on Harper's shoulders. I, I think that's uh, ignoring some other uh, things that are going on, most notably the injuries, injuries that they've suffered until this point. And do you want to to blame your yeah, it does seem backwards, for but the reason that you're not more that successful? That is the way, though, isn't it? it Somebody's going to take the heat, right? <laughs> The other thing that uh, I wonder about is that the Nationals are probably the team that has the best relationship with agent Scott Boris, and they've certainly been a landing spot for, for more than one of his uh, clients, and uh, uh, Matt Wieters is the, the one that nobody seemed to want, and somehow Boris uh, convinced uh, the Nationals to sign him. So. Um, I'm not closing the door on a, a Harper. Yeah, I think it's going to be fascinating, though, to uh, see how it all plays out because the, the owners and uh, you start taking a lot of the big players out of the game. Like, I don't see Boston as being a player. I don't see the Yankees as being a player. You know, I think the Dodgers will be more fo focused on Kershaw. It, you know, there's only so many teams that are going to be looking at uh, trying to accommodate a, a contract of that magnitude. And... 
you take some of those big players out of the game, and who is Boris going to be bidding up against uh, for the services of, of Bryce Harbour, the Cubs? Yeah, you, that's certainly an excellent point, and one we always have to keep in the front of our mind. But you were dismissing the Yankees, and I don't know if I would go so far as to, to do likewise. Uh, they got under the luxury tax they, this, this season, and they cut the penalty that would be invoked upon them by doing it next year. And I, I just think that if a, a key guy like that is available, that the Yankees have to be in the discussion. And I believe Brett Gardner's contract. Yeah, it's is, it's going to be interesting uh, to see how that so is. That how that is approached. Well I, I think the Yankees the are going to develop, continue down that path of developing as much of the in-house talent as they can. So it's going to be very fascinating. Uh, you know, hey, the record that the Yankees own today, a lot of that has to do with their change in philosophy. And I don't know if they're going to reverse on that goal, especially with Stanton locked, locked up indefinitely. I, you know, I had huge money. All right. Well, uh, crazy prediction time. I'm going to give you a crazy prediction. Time. All right. Well, uh, crazy prediction time. I'm going to give you a crazy prediction and ask you to comment on it. And then I'll ask you to give me a crazy prediction of your own. And uh, my crazy prediction this week is that uh, MLB will begin the process to implement a computerized strike zone within um, the next 10 years. I guess my question would be, so I want if to know Earl Weaver how crazy is, was is still that? around, would he argue with the computer? <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> yeah, no, I don't think it's all that crazy. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I think Absolutely. there'll be a lot of resistance, but I think at some point in time, we are going to see, you know, we are going to see some changes in that direction. Uh, how far it goes, how fast, I'm not settled on, but I I don't think it's that crazy, Brian. All right, well, you shot my, down my idea, so show me what a crazy prediction is. Well, all right, well, you uh, shot my down Max my Muncy. idea, so show me what a crazy It's more home runs than Bryce Harper, and the Nats don't make the playoffs. Well, I don't know how many Well, I don't know how many homers that Bryce Harper has at the moment, but the Mets just played the Dodgers, and I think Muncie is around 16-17. So um, I assume they're somewhat even. Uh, because I think Harper got off to a good start with homers. This Harper year. has Harper has 19, his, uh, Brian, if that helps out, and, Mun and Muncie has 70 lately. So um, you're saying that he's okay, and Muncie has 17. I'm 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 sorry. I'm I'm going to go crazy on that. Uh, the, I don't the Nats think don't make Max the playoffs. Muncie is going to out homer oh, Har Harper on the yeah. season. And what was I didn't think half? I'd have to twist your arm too hard on that one, Brian. <laughs> oh, sign me up. Um, yeah, no, I think uh, <laughs> I think they're going to finish third. I, in that I'm division. biased. I freely admit that. But you know, I think that's a realistic possibility. Um, I, I think the, the the Braves are in a position where they can make moves and uh, address weaknesses that they have. The Phillies, I'm I'm not quite so sure of, but I kind of like. Where, where they are and, and the production that they're getting and, and maybe they don't necessarily have to make the moves that the Braves need to make. 
So I, I can I can see that happening. I think the the next couple of uh, weeks are are going to be uh, critical for the Nats. I mean they've they've got to get it in gear. They've got injured guys back. Yeah, you know once yeah they got to get Strasburg back. Definitely, your guys are here. Let let's see it on the field. Once he returns, uh, you know Murphy's Murphy's back on the field. He's not running very well, but he's back on the field. Yeah, it's it's time to it's time to put up or shut up. I think for the Nats. So let's turn back to the Mets now and, and talk about uh, Zach Wheeler. He had a real nice outing Wednesday night. He threw seven scoreless innings, uh, gave up only five hits, and had seven strikeouts. But he didn't get the win because the bullpen blew it for him. Huh, that's something we never see. Uh, he's only two and six on the year, and he's got a 4.47 ERA. So how would you describe Wheeler to someone who maybe wasn't such a great baseball fan, maybe someone who's never seen him pitch, well, and a phrase I'd like to use is consistent and his inconsistency. Uh, SP4 that he seems to be uh, right now. It's a shame because Zach Wheeler, uh, you know, he lost basically two years due to injuries, and two very important years. And uh, I liked, I love Zach Wheeler. I, the potential before the Tommy John, you know, I, th- I think he had the potential to be a top-tier starter. Uh, I think that has taken its toll, and I think what you're looking at at a Zach Wheeler is probably an SB3 at the at the top end to a, to an SB4. And like I said, it's very unfortunate because the injuries really, really derailed a great career, potentially great career. Tim. To me, being able to see him pitch on a regular basis, I'm encouraged by what I see. I think that his velocity is 98, 99% of what it was prior to the Tommy John surgery. He's regularly hitting 96, 97. I saw a 99 recently. So the velocity is back. Command has never been his strong point, and one of the things that I think has really frustrated the fan base for the Mets is that he regularly would take 25 pitches to get through the first inning, and because of that, it would limit his ability to go deep into games. But I think we're seeing some progress made on that, and and I think that there's I think that there's upside there. Uh, I think he's got to continue to to throw strikes. I mean, he's he's got to be able to put away hitters when he gets to two strikes, and I don't think he's. Yeah, a, no, that, a that's fair product, enough. I don't. Uh, I don't I watch feel a whole lot better about him right now than I did uh, twelve months ago. And uh, you know, all you have to do is take a look at a pitcher like Blake Snell in Tampa Bay. A great example. He, you know, he, he'd get two quick strikes and then he'd nibble, throw twelve pitches, and end up with a guy on first base. And he got sent to the minors a few times for it last year, and he's come back, and he's going after hitters now. And he's going deep into games, he's trusting his stuff, and maybe that's just something with time that Wheeler will also uh, will also do. You look at his calendar age and you think, well, he should be here now, but... As you mentioned, he missed two years because of various uh, arm-related injuries, and he's not as uh, established as you might expect he would be at this age. So I love the the Snell analogy, and, and certainly as a Mets fan, I hope that's what we see happen with Wheeler next year. 
Well, let's get one more question in here, and let's keep talking on uh, the the pitching side of things. And but let's go from uh, prospect wannabe to to let's say greatness, and let's talk about Clayton Kershaw, who certainly had his own injury problems here the last couple of years. And my question for you is: Do you think we'll see another uh, great season from Kershaw? Uh, I think the one thing he's with cursed Kershaw to have the, is that the same end to his time, career that Johan Santana think, did. I uh, think Kershaw can change the path that he's currently on. Okay, so I I don't think it's fair to say compare him to Santana because with Santana it was a shoulder, and that's when you start talking shoulder injuries of that magnitude, they are fairly usually catastrophic in nature. But Kershaw, it's about the back, and uh, you know, he, he's he's got a bad disc in his back, and he's had one there since, what, last year, I think he missed time with it. And the back has flared up again. And I understand that surgery is a last-case, last-option scenario for all these players. And, hey, I, and I can appreciate that. But I think as long as he continues to not look at the surgery option for that, I think it's going to limit his potential moving forward. We've now seen him miss time in, what, two consecutive years. He hasn't dealt with the disc, and it's not going to get any better. So moving forward, I see 150 innings out of Kershaw until he decides at some point in time to look at the surgery, and he might not. He might be happy with 150 innings, 140, 150 innings every year. I, I don't know the risk involved in that particular surgery, but until it's cleaned up, I don't think there's any chance that we see the 200, 210 innings of strong pitching out of Clayton Kershaw. Now, in 2016, he made uh, only 21 starts, 149 innings, so right around uh, the area that you were talking about. And he finished fifth in the Cy Young Award voting, which is kind of hard to believe but he was so incredibly dominant when he took the mound and then last year he pitched a few more innings but wasn't nearly as dominant as he had been in 2016 and and this year I don't think he's going to get to um, 150 innings and, and unless he can all of a sudden start going eight and nine on a regular basis which given that we're talking about Kershaw I guess we should remove completely but it, it's so sad to, to see somebody who's just yeah, so it, it, great at what he does as Kershaw is. Yeah, no, to, definitely. To have the injury yeah. problems. When he is 100% he healthy, and it was sad with he Santana is the best pitcher sad in the Kershaw. game of baseball. Bar none. Yeah. I think he's better than Scherzer. Yeah, definitely. He's better than DeGrom. Better than DeGrom. He, he is... He is the think he's better uh, than Scherzer. Mike Trout of pitchers when he's 100% uh, healthy. How's that? Oh, I love it. You can tell that Mr. Tim McLeod is a podcast veteran. <laughs> oh, I love it. You can tell that Mr. Tim McLeod is a podcast veteran because he's Occasionally, able to tie I even listen, Brian. Together. <laughs> Beautiful. That, that, that is the well, Christmas like present with a bow wrapped around. Uh, Tim, you're the best. Thanks for <laughs> my pleasure, well, I'd like Brian. to thank Anytime my guest tonight, guest, uh, to talk Tim McLeod. Tim, give me a call because you're the best. Thanks for I always so much enjoy for, for joining time spent me. Uh, with you talking up the game. Thanks again, my friend. Thank you. And for listeners, uh, next week we'll have uh, Mets 360 writer Matt Netter on, and we'll talk more about the Mets. 
Uh, until then, good night and goodbye.